Hello and welcome to the Fat Tailed Thoughts podcast, where every week we bring you the workings of money, finance and crypto. I'm jo- my name's Stephen Dickens and I'm joined as always by my dear friend and now colleague, Jared Clee. Hey Jared, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. We got to see each other in person this week. It was good to hang out. It was. We, we, we didn't get a beer in, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure we will yeah, next we need time. To work and and you, on that. you've been busy over there. You've got a, an entirely new background complete with tons of Star Wars gear. Yeah, so I, it's a highly curated t- dual tower of books. We have Star Wars here. We have watches here. Both of my hobbies are covered. Can, can I ask? I, I we, We've got the BB-8. I've played around with that. That's the little uh, remote control BB-8, right? So there's an update on BB-8. Sphero, the company I bought it from, has completely pivoted its business to get out of fun robots, oh, come educational on. robots. I dug that out of a box, tried to play with it. The app no longer works. Oh, break my heart. I love that. We oh. used to have one uh, in the office back back when we had offices driving it around. Yes. What's the other one? What's the other one over your other shoulder? So that is a Lunar Lander Lego set. Very cool. Very geeky. Very cool. So actually, you've got to be getting pretty excited because I, I believe we have a, a major holiday coming up, what, next week? May 4th. <laughs> yes, I'm a Star Wars geek, if everybody knows me. Watches in Star Wars are where my geekiness comes out. Jared's seen my watch geekery firsthand. I hear I'm just waiting for you to get one of the, uh, not just the lunar lander, but the entire rocket ship and just see it slowly go up in the background over the course of the episode. So my daughter has a Saturn V. My daughter also has a uh, International Space Station. I did try and negotiate to get those to go on the shelf behind me, but failed miserably. Those are those aren't cheap. The, the big ones, they're a couple hundred bucks, right? I mean, they're thousands of pieces. The Saturn V is pretty impressive. But let's get off Lego because I don't think anybody t- is subscribing to this podcast to hear us. We'd like to thank Lego for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, this episode <laughs> is brought to you by Lego. Please go and buy Lego right now. Yeah, I mean, if you're listening from Lego and you want to sponsor the show, they won't take your money, but I think it may be a stretch. Um, this week we're talking embedded finance. Great newsletter. We'll put that in the show notes. Get us orientated here. I think this could be the topic of 10 letters and 10 accompanying podcasts. So we'll maybe try and stay high level here. Give us the sort of view of embedding finance. What, what, first off, what does that term mean if people haven't heard it before? Because I think they'll get it pretty quickly when you define it. But really interested to just sort of get the listeners and watchers orientated here. So I think we've now all seen it. We're, we're a couple of years into a journey of embedded finance. When you go shopping online, oftentimes in checkout, you'll no longer see just the option of like enter your credit card. You'll often see a a little checkbox beneath it that says, would you like to pay in four installments with a firm or, or a different company? That is embedded finance. Now, it's not just payments and saying, hey, here's a fintech offering in a storefront. We can talk about insurance. We can talk about buy now, pay later type systems for other types of purchases. We can talk about financing uh, for vertical uh, SaaS. So think a a marketplace for buying uh, farm equipment or the like. There's a whole bunch of versions of how this is manifesting. 
But fundamentally, embedded finances, rather than having the life decision, uh, you're getting married, you're filing for a will, you're whatever, you're making a purchase for groceries, and then the financial decision of how do you pay for that, how do you insure it, et cetera, separate. What if I can take the financial decision and embed it in the life decision, in that purchase point, in that file a will point and the like? So and that is, is a wildly finance. powerful idea. So this is bringing the finance into the moment, into the transaction, into where the web experience so it's not, oh, I want to go and buy this couch for a thousand bucks and then let me go and sort out a loan because I need a thousand bucks. It's in, it's bring that loan right into the contextual framework of the transaction and say, whilst you're buying that couch, would you like to finance it with four or four monthly four quarterly payments or monthly payments? Would you like to have that on the same screen so that you can it's right there at the point and we're removing that friction precisely and we we have kind of what i would call an early version of this the beta of this with auto loans when you go buy a car and they go would you like to pay for it or would you like to take out this zero apr loan for 36 months etc now the reason i wouldn't call that true embedded finance is the company that is selling you the car backup, it might not be the dealership under the covers, it's the actual auto company. They're the ones offering the loan alongside it. It's this bundled offering of a single company where embedded finance with the, the birth of cloud computing, with the birth of APIs, we can now componentize uh, parts of a company and parts of services. The storefront, the online storefront that's selling you deodorant or whatever you're buying is a different company than the company that's offering the financing under the covers to do that. But they're able to offer it as part of a seamless experience. You never leave that storefront. You don't have to re-enter your information because of the advances we've made in technology. That's true embedded. Different companies, one experience. To your point, this isn't Ford Finance offering you finance on the Ford vehicle you're buying from Ford. This is a firm offering you finance on Amazon for groceries you're buying from some uh, maybe even some third party correct and and critical to that is that that unified user experience all of us have experienced that you're on a website you want something you want to purchase another item you want to take out a loan whatever it is you click a button and all of a sudden you're bought, brought to some third party website they have no idea who you are all of the information you've already entered you have to re-enter it's a huge pain that, that, to put on a product management hat, that is a conversion funnel problem, mm -hmm. meaning there are multiple steps that it takes to get someone to make a decision, to finally actually pay for something, to actually finally sign a document. Every time you add in a new step in that process, you're going to have some amount of fall off. If you start with 100 people and you add five steps and there's fall off at each one, you're going to end up with a smaller group at the bottom. If it's the same fall off at each step and you can remove a step, you've only got four, just without really improving anything else, just by reducing the number of steps, you'll have less fall off. You'll have more people buying the product. When you start including stuff like, hey, I'm going to make you 
sign up on a new website. I'm going to make you re-enter information. I'm going to give you a different logo and a different color scheme. The fall off goes mu- becomes much, much higher. You're ruining that, that seamless user experience. You're ruining the flow that people are in. You're undermining the trust. Well, if you can keep it in one place, one brand, one color scheme, one experience, enter data one time, you can r- dramatically increase the conversion the number of people that actually make the purchase. We've seen this with PayPal from just a payments point of view. They've managed to do a good job of integrating that pay with PayPal. I think what we're seeing here is embedded and frictionless finance is taking it from just a, a payments thought. I'm going to use my PayPal account as a payments thought. So now I'm going to finance it, put a loan, put some sort of interest-bearing type relationship in place, maybe it's 0% and the interest and the money flow is not on, not seen to me as the consumer, but there's money tr- sort of changing hands in the background to fund that it might be for interest-free payments for me. But I think the point here, and I, I'd maybe add the word frictionless, it's embedded, happens at the point and it's frictionless finance is what it is. I think what you're saying. Yeah, it's it's really well put, and I like the call out to PayPal. If, if we could roll back the clock, PayPal cut its teeth at eBay. It was an independent mm-hmm. company, got acquired by eBay, then spun out from eBay. That really, it, it may in fact be the first kind of at scale example of embedded finance instead of having to go to ebay and figure out payment on the side like you do with the craigslist they embedded a holistic payment experience within that it's it's a really good example yeah so i mean if that tells us a little bit about what it is you talked about a firm there's various other organizations in this space and i think as we sort of pivot to the second topic here Talk a little bit about some of those organizations, if you will, and then also what it means to be a bank, because I think we're blurring the lines and we're sort of taking out a loan, if we just boil it down to its most simple, sounds like a banking function, sounds like something I go get from a bank. Is this a fintech, a tech fin? Is it a bank? Is it not a bank? Is it a neobank? Is it a challenger bank? There's lots of words that get thrown around in the space. Maybe sort of draw a line to us from who these firms are. We've seen some big acquisitions of this space, in this space of late. What are we seeing and who are these firms? So under the covers, we, we need to break apart two different functions that are happening here. There is a role to go get and attract users. That is marketing, that's big scale stuff, that's spending a lot on ads. It is inherently a scale game. We we talked about this in a previous episode. Um, It's what Warren Buffett in the publishing world called survival of the fattest. Where do you go advertise? Well, you go advertise with a place that has the most users. Well, what that means is it rapidly becomes a winner takes all in whatever market Mm -hmm. you're in. So that's really an attractive game for a venture capitalist to play, a type of company for them to finance, because those companies can get really, really, really big. They can be worth billions and billions of dollars. But the flip side is if you start with 100 companies, maybe one or two actually survive to get to scale. Everyone else goes bankrupt. 
that's or gets acquired in, in, in as somebody gets quite large. That is not what you want out of a bank. That is not what you want out of an insurance company. The cost of a bank failure, the cost of an insurance company not being able to pay out is extraordinarily high. You want those companies to be slow, relatively conservative. I, I hesitate to say, but boring in, in terms of their business. They're not taking on, on a lot of risk. And you know, year after year, say in a 30-year relationship, like with a mortgage, you know that company is still going to be there. The reason I start with that breakdown is if we're talking about, in the case of a firm, providing point of sale financing, I'm purchasing $100 worth of groceries and I want to, rather than pay for all of it, I want to buy now, pay later, take out a, a three-month loan that, that happens in three installments, we've got two different problems we have to solve for. Go get a bunch of users and then provide financing. They're two different companies. So even though that you, that frictionless user experience is, seems like one thing, it's two different companies under the covers. And this is, you're, you're gonna see me very unusually get up on a soapbox for a moment here. Is this where I hand you the soapbox and you stand on it on a pine? Yeah, I'll fi fi finally be a, a, a normal height. Um, <laughs> I always think you I'm said that, not me. I, did, I made no short, short jokes. No, I'm a, I'm a bit like those little dogs that that bark a lot. Like I think I'm a big dog, but you know, I'm just. Not. It's the it's, uh, it's the gun show that gives you that, buddy. <laughs> it's the gun show. Um, so it, under the covers, you have actual banks, and increasingly they're creating APIs so you can just expose the savings account, just the deposit account, just the debit cards just the lending, whole individual parts of the bank are being broken apart, componentized, and then being able to be consumed, embedded in somebody else's application one by one by one. That allows a bank to keep specializing in banking activities in a conservative way while outsourcing the go get a lot of customers mm -hmm. to venture capital type companies that can be funded to get to massive scale, but maybe not all of them will survive. Where I get really annoyed is when I see words like neobank, which is now a industry standard term for companies like Chime. Chime is, for, from all accounts, a very good company. I don't use them, good reputation, a massive user base, and they present themselves as a bank, as a neobank. They're not a bank at all. What they are is a marketing engine. They're a customer service engine. They're a technology company that's creating a mobile banking app, but they themselves don't do banking. Under the covers, they're using companies like Evolve, like, uh, like uh, Cross River, actual banks that do banking activities. That's a really healthy separation of responsibilities. But as a consumer, as a customer of Chime, I need to know who I'm actually facing off with. When I use the Chime Mobile the Banking Chime Act, my money isn't at Chime. It's at a bank. And that's a good thing. But I should know that. But, Jared, it's embedded in the 30-page T's and C's document yeah, that you sign up for. It's there on the 13th page in 10-point font. Did you not read that? So in the case... Oh, I'm getting all worked up. I thought I'd trigger you with just a little bit more. 
I just yeah, just get just get me on a roll here. It, it it's it's a really healthy relationship. And in the case of someone offering a debit card with an attached savings account, I'm look, I'm not totally comfortable with the fact that the name of the bank is buried in 30 pages of terms, but so be it because the structure of that under the covers FDIC insurance on the account, etc. That's fine. Where I start getting less and less comfortable is if I look at the Chime style, here's a mobile app with an actual bank under the covers, and I go back to the conversation we had about bad money a couple of weeks ago, where I have deposit-like accounts at other institutions, but it's not a bank under the covers. It's a money services business or the like. As a ordinary consumer, I see two mobile apps that both offer me a quote-unquote account to save money in, and I don't actually know that they are fundamentally different. Mm. One of them has a $250,000 backstop and a whole bunch of basically government guarantees that my money is safe, and the other one doesn't. And that is a recipe for disaster. And we we talked in the week about custody of crypto, and I think you and I both live in a headspace where burdensome regulation is not something we're a fan of, but we're also in the headspace that regulation in the right place, in the right space, and making sure your money doesn't disappear is exactly the right place. FDIC insurance for bank deposits, custody providers need to have that same sort of um, regulatory framework because, hey, I've got my money on a Coinbase exchange. I think if it goes bump, then it's safe. It absolutely is not safe on that exchange. The only other alternative is self-custody. Then you lose your seed phrase. and your... So I think your point here is well made. Knowing who you're dealing with and what type of regulatory framework. And that's, I mean, I think the average person in the street knows their money is safe when they're with a bank. I think maybe FDIC, maybe people wouldn't know what it is, maybe wouldn't know the structure of it, but at least they'd think if I put it in the bank and the bank goes bump, I don't lose my money. I think that that level of consumer protection is vital, and I think we're blurring that line. And I think that we are. We, we are. And, and I, I'm conscious that there, there is a there needs to be a healthy balance here. And it's going to be really hard to get right. The power of embedded. We're going to come back in a sec to talk about the data that gets generated out of that actually makes the bank better at banking under the covers. But the seamless user experience, the fact that I can have it in the application itself, the fact that the friction's lower, the fact that I don't have to go to another website, it is a huge part of the power of these products. It makes them better. You might not think about getting financing for your couch purchase or your whatever purchase, but because it's offered right there at a point in time, you go, actually, that's a better decision for me than shelling out the cash up front. That is a wonderful offering. If you are too heavy handed in the in the disclosures that are very much necessary to understand that, hey, it's a different person offering you the loan than selling you the couch. If you're too heavy handed in those disclosures, you're going to wreck that benefit you get. But the flip side is not disclosing it at all 
you're, you're going to end up with consumers in really nasty places and you allow companies to open the door to predatory lending and all the stuff that we're precisely trying to avoid. Yeah. And it's, I think we're, we're, I mean, obviously these services are now at scale, but I think we're still early enough that maybe this is an area regulators need to be looking at of, yes, it's frictionless. Yes. It's embedded. Is the consumer being protected? I have no doubt that companies like a firm are going to be around for the long term. I have no doubt that they're well run and they're well structured. So I'm not making it casting any aspersions. I think that's an area, though, that as these services get traction and people start signing up for more and more kind of deferred payments and loans off the back, this needs some looking at. We're just starting to see the beginnings of the CFPB, who's responsible for consumer protection in the U.S. at the federal level, we're just beginning to see them take a real look at this sector. They're starting with buy now, pay later that, hey, I'm buying groceries and three-month installment. A firm is maybe the biggest, certainly among them, Klarna. There's a couple of other rather large ones. Um, by the way, Square went out and bought one for $26 billion or so. Mm -hmm. So now every time you swipe your credit card at the coffee shop, in theory, that coffee shop could extend you, rather, via Square, extend a loan to help you pay for whatever. So we're, we're seeing, yes, the this, this space is much bigger, but it's a really good example, buy now, pay later, of regulatory arbitrage and stuff that's flying a little bit beneath the surface. So... In order to have to do most of the uh, regulations, be required to, to comply with most of the regulations around lending, in order to uh, need to do most of the disclosures around lending, you have to pull credit to actually extend the loan. Buy now, pay later, realize that they can get a bunch of data from the shopping experience, from tracking people across websites that allows them to build a quasi-credit score for a consumer without actually pulling credit. What that means is that a firm and the other buy now, pay later companies don't have to comply with most of the lending laws. They're technically, even though they are extending you three months of financing, it does not meet the letter of a law of a loan. That becomes a problem for the regulators like the CFPB because a strict reading of how they've enforced stuff historically, a firm is not within their purview to go regulate. Now, just last week, the CFPB came out with guidance. Buried in Dodd-Frank, there was actually a section that allowed the CFPB to expand its purview to include non-financial institutions that were engaged in financial-like activity. And for the first time, we're now caught 12 years past uh, the writing of Dodd-Frank, the CFPB put out a notice and said, we're going to actually take on that responsibility. So they are now, at, they've been open and frank about, they're going to go take a look at the buy now, pay later space and say, look, I know that, I know that you guys have, have structured it so you're not a traditional lender, but it's in the best interest of everyone who's taking out these three-month style loans to make sure that you guys are making high-quality loans, you're not abusing consumers, all the stuff that the CFPB looks out. And I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing for the likes of a firm. It's a good thing for the likes of uh, what is now Block, formerly Square, um, because I think they're well-run companies. 
I think that regulation is going to provide a further moat for them against some of the people that could emerge. So this is one of the cases where regulation isn't potentially going to be a bad thing and slow down innovation. It's going to bring credibility and and sensible regulation to a space that definitely needs it. It, it also, if we look a little bigger picture, um, if we look at uh, your systemic risk type conversations, one of the challenges of having major lenders, especially major consumer lenders outside the purview, uh, outside the, the regulatory apparatus is it becomes really difficult for regulators to keep a finger on the pulse of how much risk is the economy or the people taking at whole. Um, that having massive blind spots like we had leading into 0809 with the housing sector, it can blow up in, in all of our faces. So again, there's a balance here. You don't want to harm, you don't want to hinder really interesting, innovative, powerful new ways for people to obtain financing and insurance and the like, right at the point of decision where they can actually understand it, where it's an easy user experience. But the flip side is you don't want to open the door too wide to allow predatory type activities that frankly harm everybody. So I think we're coming to the end of that section. We're, we're starting to paint a picture from a regulatory framework perspective looking forward. Where do you see the innovations? I get the impression from that we're kind of on the cusp of this becoming something that happens at scale. We're starting to see some M&A activities come through with blocks, acquisition. Where do you see the this part of the industry going forward? So the, the power of this, what, what's underpinning this massive drive, one, yes, the embedded, I can make it available, but secondly, you now have traditional lenders, banks and the like, as well as non-traditional lenders who are taking private capital to fund these loans. They're getting access to data they simply did not have before. Beyond just the normal credit report, they can now collect information about consumers at the point of getting a will, at the point of purchasing a product, you name it that they can then feed back into their underwriting models and they can create better models than a traditional lender can who doesn't have access to those same insights. So what we're seeing is we're seeing those types of activities, meaning places where lenders currently don't have good access to data, but embedded into a product could get access to good data starting to enter in with an expectation of, as I make more loans in this space, my underwriting model is going to get better and I will start out-competing legacy lenders. And by the way, that may mean I'm entering into a space where lenders simply don't operate today because they don't have enough access to data to even get a toehold. Re really fun example of this, um, uh, uh, Roland Mancia and, and his co-founder launched a, a company a couple of years ago called Safely Finance. Safely Finance is underwriting moving costs for renters. We, we've seen lots of headlines that home ownership in the US, especially for uh, millennials and Gen Z is on the decline. Renting is on the up and up. A lot of drivers from that housing costs are going up the like, but trend, trend regardless of how we got there. Well, for especially for young folks, say coming right out of college, moving costs, first and last month rent, 
deposit the cost to move put your limited stuff but still stuff into a truck and move across the country it can be a tens of thousands of dollars endeavor that is among the biggest financial decisions you're going to make early in your life right now all of that cash is spent up front what safely finance is made available direct to renters but also embedded with property managers is financing that allows someone to take out a loan to pay for all of that, pay back safely finance over time. Now, from the property manage, manager's perspective, this is great. They get all that cash up front, just like they would today. By the way, they also get a guarantee on the back end. So let's say if there's a early lease break fee, safely finance steps in and will guarantee that as well. The renter who by the way, may have a really good post-college job lined up with high income, but simply doesn't have cash in hand today because they haven't started the job, gets optionality that allows them to move into a place that they can very well afford the ongoing cost but not be upfront. It's a really strong example. There simply are not lenders in this space today because those recent grads, they don't have 20 years of credit. They don't have a million lines on their credit reports. Instead, what they have is the promise of a high income, the data around the type, the university they went to and the type of major and the city they're living in, lots of atypical data that doesn't make its way into traditional credit score, but is highly indicative of a really good borrower. It's a phenomenal example of something that go back 10 years, it could not exist, but safely finance via an embedded model is creating a new type of loan, totally dependent on those awesome insights they can get. And if you were to put that on the Hertz website, or on the furniture company website where they're buying the new couch for their import, and you can provide those breadcrumb trails to say, oh yeah, I'll go amortize the cost of renting the Hertz vehicle that's gonna go and move me across the country. Oh, I can go, oh, oh, and you can start a, a loan journey that a city or a Wells or a HSBC is just not gonna see because they're not exposed to that. Yes, it would be an option that could they could potentially appoint, go and approach the bank they've maybe been with for th four or five years and go get a 30K loan, maybe not. So I think that's, I, I definitely see that as a future that we could, we could see here. What do you see as a future for the, some of the companies in this space? So if, if we, we have to look at a couple different tiers here. For the banks, it's going to be a long journey. Still today, uh, almost half of banks have not moved to the cloud in any meaningful way. Um, there are the core banking providers, uh, Fiserv, FIS are, are the two biggest in, in the U.S. Um, core banking mean the technology layer that powers deposits and the like. They have not been particularly fast on the shift to cloud. Um, giving credit where credit's due, Jack Henry, um, who is, uh, again, one of the, the, one of the, the third uh, big core banking provider in the U.S., uh, has made a massive push to move to cloud yeah, and start that journey about. Just to dive in from an international perspective, Temenos, which is probably bigger outside of the U.S., 
than the Jack Henry, but would go sort of head to head. They are doing a lot, particularly with the likes of AWS and, and Microsoft to move people to the cloud. Certainly a bigger provider outside of the US have made some acquisitions in the US. Yeah, Temnos' footprint in, in Africa is enormous and yeah. in Europe outside the UK is, is extraordinarily large. You're seeing it as well. Um, Mysis uh, got bought up by, uh, I believe it was Vista Equity a couple of years ago. Um, Mysis was one of the other big core banking tech providers. Um, the private equity firm has pushed them heavily in the cloud direction. They're now uh, doing a good job on that front. Um, th there's good work happening there. But I, br I bring that up because it means that most community banks, the 5,000 or so banks in the U.S., put the big boys, the J.P. Morgans and the like that have big tech teams to the side. Most community banks, they're banks, not technology companies. So they're dependent on their core banking providers to make the services available that allow them to offer, hey, here's just a savings account available via API that you can embed in anybody's mobile banking app. That's the community banks are dependent on the core bankers to make that set of services available. We are just beginning that journey. Most of the banks in the country aren't there. That's going to be a double-edged sword. For the banks that do that well, that get out in front, that, that move relatively quickly in this space to kind of grow up alongside the, the Evolves and the Mercuries, and there's only maybe 10 truly fintech-style banks in the country today. For the community banks that move quickly through that journey, strike the right partnerships with take your pick of the tech provider that then makes that available, they're likely going to do very, very well. They can drive deposits at scale and lending at scale that simply you can't get in small-town community banking traditionally. The flip side is most of those banks are going to wake up and realize my competition is no longer the other community bank, the other credit union in the next town over. It's anybody who can put an app on a phone. And that's, look, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for community banking. It's really, really important. But I also have a soft spot in my heart for small town bookstores. Um, and yet you find me buying a huge volume of what I purchase on Amazon. Um, so I'm quite conscious that, that it is going to be that double-edged sword of, yes, for those that get it, it's a wonderful opportunity. Yes, it's going to mean significant consolidation in the banking space of your world of competition just got a lot bigger than it used to be, and not all of them are going to survive. I think that's a fantastic way to sum up. As always, you've been listening to the Fat Tailed Thoughts podcast brought to you every week by Jared and I, where we talk about the makings and workings of finance, money, and crypto. If you like the show, please click and subscribe. And tell your friends about it. And if you really like it, give us a five-star rating as we try and build this platform. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you on the other side.